electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I am Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. The CDC just making huge changes to indoor and outdoor mask wearing recommendations. We expect to hear from President Biden on COVID-19 any moment now, and we'll bring it to you when it happens. Plus, inflation or reflation as prices continue to rise. Can companies pass them along to consumers? Looks like yes. One strategist says yes. Consumers will happily pay up. He joins us to explain the investment implications of that. And a half million new businesses. As the country began to climb out of the pandemic, American ingenuity took over and entrepreneurship has taken off. We'll look at where the jobs are being created. But we do start with the markets, and Dom Chu is here with those numbers. Hitting a pause button, just a small one here, Kelly, as we take a look at what's happening with the markets right now. The Dow Industrial is off by just about two-tenths of 1%, 33,920-odd points for the Dow Industrial level right there. The S&P 500, 41.82, just about one-tenth of 1% of the downside, and the Nasdaq Composite down one-third of 1%. Remember, these two indexes both hit record highs in yesterday's trading. So again, just a bit of a pause. One place, though, that's still seeing some continued upside momentum in the commercial real estate side of things, specifically with regard to retail real estate type companies. We're talking about mall owners, strip mall owners, shopping center owners, Simon Property, Regency Centers, Kimco Realty. Each of these gets a check, not a star, because no, they're not record highs, but they are at least 52-week highs for Simon Property, Regency Centers, and Kimco Realty. Keep an eye on that retail trade. Remember, it could be that reopening trade on the real estate side of things. And then Penn National Gaming gets an upgrade We're talking some moves to the upside today, 2.25%, $92.30 at the highs that we saw. This was roughly a $21 billion company. It's roughly closer to 15 right now still, though. Some real upside moves in Penn National Gaming. Remember, Kelly, we've highlighted it before. Penn National Gaming on a one-year basis up nearly 500%, the best-performing stock in the S&P 500 in that one-year span. I'll send things back over to you. Wow. Uh, Don, we appreciate it. A turn to the Fed. They're kicking off a two-day meeting on interest rates. The focus will be on inflation and their gamble to let things run a little hot to keep the recovery on track. During earnings season so far, big consumer names from Whirlpool and Kimberly-Clark to General Mills and Procter & Gamble have all announced plans to raise prices. So will companies successfully pass along all these higher costs? My next guest says yes, and that it's a very good sign for corporate earnings. Joining me now is Barry Knapp. He's the managing partner and director of research at Ironside's Macroeconomics. Barry, it's good to see you again. Welcome back, Kelly. Thank you. So what's interesting about this is usually you think, well, everybody can't raise prices because the money has to come from somewhere. And you say in this case that money's coming from extra savings, stimulus checks. I mean, you think consumers are going to pay up everywhere they're being asked? Uh, yeah, abs- ab- absolutely. I mean, t- listen, the business cycle pattern typically is that prices paid move first for producers. Um, input costs, commodities are freely traded. Then prices received move. And then um, and then margins catch up. And part of it is because as revenues go up, they cover their fixed costs, not just the variable costs, right? So the prices paid versus received is a variable cost argument. But seeing total growth or total revenue growth up 
is when they start to cover those fixed costs and that spread widens, that's a big positive for small caps, for example. So this is just a typical business cycle pattern, but specifically about whether consumers will pay higher prices or not. Right. They've been paying those higher prices for decades. Service sector inflation, which is two-thirds of consumption, has been running well above 3% through this entire disinflationary impulse. The disinflationary impulse has only been through goods prices. That's a function of globalization, you know, the, the global supply of industrialized workers going from 750 million in 2000 and, or 1990 to 2 billion by 2010. That's the piece that I think is ending, That's right? I mean, well, so let me stop you right there because this is fascinating. Because in the fir- on the one hand, what you're saying is that, you know, if I'm a company, I should always be raising prices. I mean, you make it sound like there's never been a price hike a consumer, you know, balked uh, against. And I guess what your point is that that's because, broadly speaking, you have Amazon and all these disruptors coming in and generally lowering the price and improving technology. And I take your point. But I, I just don't know if that's true in the real world. I mean, is it true that I'm going to still happily walk into that Chipotle where we can quote what they just said the other day about pricing? And I look at, you know, the fast food index. I've talked about this before. You go to Wendy's, you can't get out the door for under 10 bucks, like one or two meals. I mean, at some point, aren't the consumers going to find some way to substitute in a way that could hurt profit margins? Well, as I said, those service sector prices have been rising at that level for decades, right? They never fell. The only time that service sector prices have fallen below 3% is during the pandemic. And that's the whole substitution pattern. But that'll recover quickly. I mean, that's a function of housing and uh, and medical care costs that have come down so much. It's really the goods that's where the impulses come from. And even if you think about, okay, so Walmart, you know, went to China, got a bunch of cheap goods, uh, you know, Amazon disintermediated the goods sector. You don't really get cheaper prices on Amazon anymore than you get from walking into a store. Agreed. You yeah. get a convenience yield. And, and that's, that's the broader point is that that goods disinflation from – that massive supply of cheap labor in the rest of the world is dissipating, right? That cheap labor supply is gone. Right. So as you as you restructure global supply chains from just in time to just in case, that you won't get that disinflationary impulse through goods. So what does this mean for the Fed? So they're saying, okay, Barry, this makes a lot of sense. That means these price pressures could stick around to some extent, or actually it means they won't because, but, but maybe they will now because global disinflation is ending. So bring it back to what's the Fed going to do? What's it mean for investors and what's it mean for the stock market? Yeah, that, listen, the Fed is looking at the next quarter thinking, okay, well, this is just a translation effect. That's true. If my thesis that we're in a serious period of deglobalization, and it was already evident last cycle, uh, Asian export growth was 15% in the 2000s. It was only 5%. In the 2010s, I think it'll be slower still in the 20s. If I'm correct that deglobalization and that goods disinflationary impulse is gone, there is not going to be a retracement and the Fed is going to be stuck. Not to mention the fact that there hasn't been any wage disinflation this cycle either. The Atlanta Fed wage tracker did not back off. Last cycle, it plunged. So I think the Fed is going to get into the third quarter and say, maybe this isn't so transitory. As Rob Kaplan is always saying, we have to be humble. And that's the point when they're going to have to start stepping back. Um, Tapering, that's a whole raising other rates. Discussion. Yeah, I mean, but it'll start to get priced well, in now if it's six they're, months they're out. Gonna, first, yeah. they'll have, first, they'll have to cut back on asset purchases. And, mm-hmm. and for me, the key is when they do that, do not just put the asset purchase taper on uh, autopilot and drive the Titanic into the iceberg like they did in the fourth quarter of 18. <laughs> 
they actually they actually have to be a little more responded. So Clarida gave a speech a couple of weeks ago and he said, once we start, 2% inflation is going to be a floor. So if we dip below two, we will slow the process or stop the process. I don't think the market will believe them on that initially. So they may have to actually do it to convince the market that they're not going to drive us into an iceberg again. Interesting. And, and now might be the time for Powell to start hinting at that if he believes so. But they're so conservative. I don't know. They, uh, they, I would, don't, they would spook the market so much. Yeah, you agree. I, I, I think I, they'll wait till the third quarter, Kelly. I really right. do, even though they shouldn't. But I think they will. All right. Barry, it's great to have your point of view. Thank you, as always. Good to see you awesome. again. Thanks. Barry Nabb of Ironsides. Today also marks the 10-year uh, anniversary of when Fed Chair Ben Bernanke held the first ever Fed press conference. They then took place every other meeting until just about two years ago when Jay Powell himself instituted the policy of holding them after every single one. With less than a year until the end of Powell's term now, should we expect him to get extended by President Biden? Or who else might now be in the running for the job? Steve Leisman is here with the results of our latest CNBC Fed survey. Steve? Hey, Kelly, thanks. Yeah, I was at that press conference. Fed Chair Jay Powell, though, is a heavy favorite on Wall Street to be renominated for a second term by President Joe Biden, even while there are substantial disagreements with some aspects of Fed policy under Powell. Seventy six percent say Biden will renominate Powell to a second four year term, which would begin early next year. Asked if Biden should be renominated, 82 percent said yes. President Biden's other options, according to our survey respondents, Fed Governor Lael Brainerd, perhaps, and also Council of Economic Advisors member Jared Bernstein. We just did it as write-ins, and those were the two leaders. Brainerd, of course, far ahead of, uh, of uh, Bernstein there. The support for Powell, whose term expires in 2022, is notable because of disagreements with Fed policy among these survey respondents. Barry Knapp is one of them. Many believe the Fed's $120 billion in monthly asset purchase. They're not needed to help the economy, and that the Fed should be tightening sooner in the face of this massive fiscal spending that the Biden administration is doing. Also, asked if climate change is an appropriate area of supervisory concern, something the Fed has increasingly emphasized, 36% said it's appropriate, 64% or nearly two-thirds say it's an inappropriate metric. Should minority employment be, or gaps be a factor in determining minority, uh, monetary policy? 46% said yes, 49% said no. So a lot of division right there. No policy change expected at the meeting this week. And indeed, for all of 2021, what the survey suggests is that even while there are disagreements between Wall Street and the Fed over policy, there's still general belief that Powell is the right person for the job, Kelly. Steve, when you say no changes for all of 2021, so what Barry just said about the Fed maybe, you know, changing policy in the third quarter in response to inflationary pressures, uh, the, you know, in general, the consensus not on board with that? No, that's not the consensus. The consensus is that the Fed will announce a taper sometime later this year, but not actually begin reducing the amount of monthly purchases until 2022. And the first rate hike is not seen until December 2022 as well. So Powell has them convinced whether they think it's necessary or not that the Fed is going to remain on hold and is purposely putting the Fed behind the curve on inflation here. Yeah, and I think that is what, what Barry was saying. They, first they start talking about it, then, you know, then they start doing it. And we'll see if they have those reaction functions he described to be a little bit more flexible. But we'll have months to talk about that. Steve, thanks. We appreciate it for now. Our Pleasure. Steve Thank you.
President Biden is expected to speak this hour about the state of vaccinations and the country's response to COVID-19. This is just as the CDC has issued new guidance for fully vaccinated people. Here to talk about all of it is Meg Terrell. I was surprised about the indoor recommendations, Meg. Yeah, Kelly, we got um, mostly a change to the outdoor mask guidance for people who are fully vaccinated, but also some for people who are not fully vaccinated. That first one, if you are walking, running, biking or hiking outdoors by yourself, they are saying that whether you're fully vaccinated or not, you don't have to wear a mask using your judgment about the situation you're going to be in. Uh, In terms of people who are fully vaccinated, small outdoor gatherings uh, with vaccinated and unvaccinated people uh, eating at an outdoor restaurant with multiple households, they are now saying it's okay um, not to be wearing your mask. In terms of the indoor guidance, you know, essentially saying you should be wearing a mask um, for, even if you're fully vaccinated, to go to a a barber or a hair salon, uh, go to a museum or a movie theater or things like that. And now they are saying, you know, as you're getting vaccinated, we will be able to do things that are more getting back to normal. And you can see the numbers are ticking up of the numbers of people who've gotten their shots. 231 million now uh, 96 million people fully vaccinated, 37%. Um, Those numbers are climbing. And for people over 65, it's 68% who are fully vaccinated now. And we did get some good news from the CDC director today, and it's important to focus on the good news too. Uh, Daily COVID cases down 21% on the seven-day average from the previous seven-day, still at 54,000 cases a day. So that is a high number, but it's coming down. Hospitalization, uh, new admissions down 9% to just more than 5,000 a day. Uh, And the daily numbers of deaths being reported has declined 6%, still 660 a day. Uh, And Kelly, we are starting to see a bit of a flagging in the pace of vaccinations here in the U.S., down about 20%. Uh, in terms of the number of shots being administered per day from that peak April 13th. So really reaching kind of this new stage of the vaccination uh, rollout uh, where you have to get to the folks who really weren't lining up and trying to get their appointments as soon as possible. It's really moving into a new a new time, Kelly. Yeah, and plenty of people, uh, you know, Stephen Stanley, the economist, different readers who are writing and say, look, the CDC is just catching up or still remains behind the reality for most Americans. But Meg, you and I know it's businesses that are often looking to these guidelines to dictate what they can do and when. And I wonder... They, it's not clear to me what this would mean for your typical restaurant, right? I mean, it's saying if you can prove everybody's fully vaccinated, a small indoor gathering, but I don't know what exactly that would mean for that kind of, uh, of establishment. Right. And the government has said it absolutely is not going to get involved in terms of vaccine passports or anything like that. Although if they do, it would just to be ensure, uh, to ensure that they are fair and, and rolled out in a way that you know, sort of makes sense, but but never mandating one themselves. But you're right, businesses do look to CDC guidance uh, for what they should be doing, especially in terms of masks. And so some of this will apply, but some of it will be really difficult if you have to prove vaccination status. Yeah, absolutely. Meg, thanks for now. Our Meg Terrell with the very, very latest. And be sure to check out our Healthy Returns on May 11th. It brings together the top healthcare CEOs, tech leaders, and investors to explore how the most innovative companies are addressing COVID-19 and its lasting effects on their industries. You can register now at cnbc.com, uh, cnbcevents.com slash healthy returns. Coming up, Stiefel reporting record quarterly revenue. The stock down right now, but it's nearly tripled from its March lows. Chair and CEO Ron Koshevsky joins us next with a look at what's driving the gains, the role of crypto, inflation, the return to work, and more. Plus, big tech is on deck. 
from Alphabet's antitrust risk to Microsoft's momentum. We have the key things investors are watching for as we count down to earnings after the bell. We're back in a couple. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Look at shares of Stiefel Financial lower about three and a half percent today, but still near their all time high set on April 16th after reporting strong earnings and record revenue. Stiefel chair and CEO Ron Kraszewski saying on the earnings call that the operating environment in 2021 has been a tailwind as the equity markets are up. Client engagement is strong and credit remains solid. And he joins me now to discuss these results. Ron, it's great to have you. Welcome back. Uh, thank you for having me. In a weird way, I guess that makes Stiefel kind of a pandemic play, although you know, it's kind of this GameStop phenomenon, this record client engagement. But then at the same time, you have strong capital markets and strong deal making. So what should I think about your stock as an investor as we start to get back, hopefully, towards, quote unquote, normal? Well, I, look, I first of all, I believe our fundamentals are extremely strong in any kind of ratio you want to look at. So uh, we've had record revenues, record earnings. Our stock on a price earnings is, is is I think is inexpensive. Uh, looking forward, though, we clearly are a beneficiary of what's going on. If you just think of all the fiscal stimulus, the monetary stimulus, and the disruption that's going on in markets, and we as a financial institution are in the middle of all of this, as are other financial institutions, uh, and uh, we're benefiting. Uh, it, as I said in my shareholder letter, in some ways, it was a hard letter to write because uh, we were very successful, yet I understand mm that not everyone shared in that success. Well, I'm also interested in the fact that you're aggressively going after financial planners to join your network. And I wonder how much room you think that has to run. I, you know, in other words, we've seen so much engagement from the retail investor with uh, the stock market over the past year. But are you going further into that space just as they might start uh, to pull back and say, now there's other things that can fill my time. I have other activities to pursue. I mean, if you're talking about uh, investors, I mean, our investors, we've been going after building this business for 25 years. And so that doesn't change today. Uh, I, uh, we're not uh, the, a day trading firm. Our investors don't sit and uh, follow the latest meme stocks at all. So wealth management's a growth business for us. The advice business is more uh, is healthier than ever. So I, I am very bullish on that and will continue to invest 
in that sector, for sure. Yeah, understood. Let's talk a little bit about crypto because, and we're going to talk a lot more, I think, on this program in the weeks and months ahead about the whole DeFi trend and what it means if if crypto becomes a method by which financial transactions change. Can Stiefel remain integral uh, to the payment system um, or how should you think about the role of crypto and, and maybe the role, uh, I don't hesitate to use the term blockchain, but as this technology becomes more and more advanced? Well, I, I don't know why you would hesitate to use the word blockchain. I think blockchain is where true innovation will occur. And I believe that anyone that doesn't recognize it does so at their peril. But, uh, you know, the blockchain, think of it as home ownership. Uh, we shouldn't have to have every uh, title through how many counties. Uh, home ownership should be on a blockchain uh, as you just titles. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it should be relatively simple. Uh, so blockchain will have applications. Uh, crypto, uh, you know, crypto is, is a digitized asset on the blockchain. Uh, and uh, today it is highly speculative. To me, the biggest, the biggest thing about crypto in terms of monetary transactions are whether or not sovereign governments are going to support it. In the U.S. today, it's a taxable transaction. It's not a currency. In China, it's very difficult to transact because governments, I do not believe, are going to give uh, just let their fiat currencies fade to black because uh, crypto is going to do I just Facebook tried it, as you remember, a few mm-hmm. years ago. That, that didn't work out. So, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, and then you, I like decentralized finance. That's, that's the new buzzword. Right. Decentralized finance has some, it's almost, uh, you know, a utopian thought uh, that everything is frictionless and there, there are no middlemen. Yet what are we doing is the marketplace. The marketplace is valuing the middlemen. I mean, Coinbase is is an exchange and a custodian. There's nothing magical about this, and and that valuation level is extraordinary. If in fact you believe right. that the blockchain and digitization is going to take all the friction away, well, then Coinbase isn't worth what they think it is. So, I, I think that there's some buzzwords floating around, but there's innovation that's going to occur clearly. That's a, a really interesting point. And we'll see as it evolves. Maybe it will kind of eat its own, uh, so to speak. But let me just ask you about one more trend that's a little bit uh, closer to home. And it's the, the deal making that I alluded to off the start, investment banking. What kind of year do you see for the rest of 2021? Well, our backlogs are double digit increases over what we started the year at. And uh uh, and we've had a very favorable market. So I see financial conditions, uh, including the stimulus and everything, to be very, uh, you know, very favorable. Uh, although I would tell investors, you hear the old adage, sell in May and go away. I'm not saying that, but I think the easy money in this market's been made, and I think you're going to see some consolidation this summer. And uh, and the concept of inflation and what that means to markets is going to become a bigger part of the dialogue going forward. Interesting. And, and as, as you've already seen here, we're starting to turn that direction, uh, and we haven't seen a stock market really have to digest that in quite some time. Ron, thanks so much. It's great well, to when check. We, when, yep. Go ahead. Uh, when we do, when the, well, when the market does, uh, if it does face the specter of higher rates, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have an impact on growth stocks, and investors should be aware of that. And when people tell me not to worry about something, Kelly, I worry about it, and, uh, and inflation falls in that camp.
Yeah, if you Thank tell you. me to worry, then I'm also going to worry about it. Ron, it's okay. good to see you. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Ron Krzyzewski of Stiefel. All right. Coming up, America's entrepreneurial spirit remained strong during the pandemic with more than half a million new business openings in the past year. Can you guess the industries that minted the most new business owners? That's ahead. Plus, Tesla's Bitcoin speculation helped boost Q1 profits by more than $100 million. Is that good or bad? We'll debate that ahead on The Exchange. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get you a check on the markets right now. The Dow is down 111 points at the lows today. It's fought back. It's only down 22 at the moment. The Nasdaq is the worst performer, down a quarter percent. In terms of sectors, energy, industrials, and financials, let's call that the leadership right now. Uh, we've got them in the green by about half a percent. Tech, healthcare, and utilities are your biggest laggards, and we've got a busy earnings week for tech. Let's get over to Rahel Solomon for our CNBC News update. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. The FBI is opening a civil rights investigation into the fatal police shooting of Andrew Brown Jr., a lawyer for the Brown family describes the shooting as an execution and says that the autopsy results back that up. Police say their investigation is ongoing. The Biden administration is easing requirements on treating opioid addiction with medication. Doctors and health workers will no longer need extra training to prescribe certain drugs that help with opioid cravings, making the treatment easier to get. And with more and more people fully vaccinated, what's the right way to greet people? Are handshakes back in and what about hugs? And how will new mask guidelines influence people's comfort levels? Well, we'll help you sort it all out tonight on the news with Shepard Smith. And that's our CNBC Rahel, News update. Is hugging, handshake, what? I don't know. It's like we have to be re-socialized as humans. Everything is so questionable these days. I, I sort of play it by ear. I, I'm a hugger, but I kind of wait to see if the person wants to be hugged. <laughs> you know, you don't want to be accused of, you know. Well, that's yeah. a whole other issue. <laughs> going yes. in for that. <laughs> yes. Well, we'll see you later. Sure. Thank you so much. Uh, Two trillion dollar companies report after the bell. Crypto credit card rewards and Bitcoin adjusted earnings. It's all coming up in today's rapid fire. We're back in a couple. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar right now. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines are John Fort, Kate Rooney and Bob Bassani. Welcome, everybody. We're going to start by drilling down on two trillion dollar companies ahead of their earnings. And one of them is almost a two trillion. Well, well here, here's what's happening. Google's parent company, Alphabet, is set to report after the bell. The quarter is expected to be even bigger than its powerful fourth quarter. The stock is up 30 percent year to date, handily outperforming the other mega caps, including Apple, Amazon, Facebook and Microsoft. Estimates are high, but mounting antitrust scrutiny will cast some sort of shadow this afternoon. John, won't it? No, I don't <laughs> think so. I mean, antitrust, we talk about it. Yes. The drum beats, but it takes so long to play out. And I think when earnings happen, investors tend to remember that. So is it something that people need to keep in the back of their mind as they invest? Sure. But, you know, it's not just Google Alphabet. It's also, you know, Amazon. It's also Apple. You know, there are all kinds of competition questions out there. But 
I don't think that's going to hang over this quarter. It is. So this is a quarter where they think, even though Q1 is typically seasonally weak, that they get a pandemic kind of reopening advertising boost from it. Apparently, it's already showing up in travel in some areas. Um, and you also, John, I think is have an interesting question around YouTube. I mean, I, I'm using it. I'm on it more than ever. And I don't know if it's just a quirk or not, but how important is that platform? What, what do you think we're going to learn about it, if anything? It's very important. Some analysts think it's still underappreciated because of the reach. I mean, nobody has managed to challenge uh, Google Alphabet's dominance when it comes to video and the ads connected to it. I mean, Facebook launched Watch, but come on, what has it done? Not that much. Twitter, Snap still niches. So that continues to yield benefits because marketers not only use it directly, but also advertise on it. And there's so many different ways to do it. Kate, what were you going to say? No, I think another thing to watch, John is absolutely right. And Kelly, I'm with you. I find myself watching YouTube more than I ever did before the pandemic. But the cloud business, that's another big one that um, has sort of snuck up here. And if you think about Amazon and what a profitable side of the business that's been and sort of under the radar. So I think that's another sector here to watch, similar to Microsoft, but challenging Amazon in cloud. And I think a lot of analysts are looking at that line of revenue. Like Deirdre Bosa has pointed out, Mm -hmm. they're sort of diversifying. They're moving away from just that ad-centered business. But yeah, I think they're probably not a lot of focus on antitrust. People are sort of putting putting their heads in the sand for now on that issue. Yeah, make, make money while the sun shines. And, Bob, how important are all of these? So that's Alphabet. We're about to talk about Microsoft. We have Twitter and all the rest. I mean, yeah. how important is this for the market this week? Well, it's very important because what's been happening is the earnings estimates keep rising, and they are going to look to the big tech, the mega cap tech names, to support that thesis. So Google, for example, their estimates are up about 15% since January. That's in line with how the market is beating all of the numbers so far. The average company has been beating by almost 20%. So the market is now anticipating that you know Google and, and Microsoft are going to probably beat by 15 to 20 percent. Now, if they pull that off, if Google, for example, can pull it off, uh, 20 percent beat uh, for the next few quarters, they'll be into the 2022 estimate. So all of a sudden, these multiples that people complain about, you know, Microsoft Alphabet, they're probably 34, 35 times forward earnings. That's not so high when you keep having the earnings estimates go up. So I'll bet you you'll see them beat by 15 to 20 percent in line with uh, expectations. I don't know if that'll pull the market forward dramatically, but it'll certainly continue to support the current price. No, but you're right. And it's amazing because Microsoft, which also reports after the bell, we question whether Satya Nadella can keep the momentum going. But, John, they're up another 17 percent so far in 2021. They've got all of these different things going on, nuance, the acquisition. This company is approaching a market cap of nearly two trillion dollars. I mean, the one trillion has certainly not been the ceiling we thought it might have been when we first crossed it, I think, in Apple's case several years back. Now you're getting the, the whole gaggle is approaching even double that valuation. It's really something. I mean, you know, where, where's law enforcement? The, the law of large numbers keeps getting broken. Remember when we were supposed to be hitting it around a trillion? How much bigger can they get? Now they're around two. But with Microsoft, you know, Piper Sandler is referring to it as expectation creep. That's what we're seeing on some of these metrics. So, you know, Azure might have to come in up uh, 50% in order to satisfy... 50%? uh, uh, Yeah, up 50% year over year is what that might have to do. And you look through commercial cloud expectations climbing above 32%, so up by a third year over year. That's tough, right? Those are tough numbers to meet. Sometimes you make 
two out of three of them, but not the third. How does the market respond? Well, we saw what happened with Tesla, some of these other names. So I don't know. I mean, um, are valuations stretched? Sure. But where else are you going to put your money? Not in the bond market, apparently. And Bob? At 35 times, I'm not sure it's stretched, 35 times forward earnings right now for Microsoft on the current estimates, $1.78, forget about it. They're going to do north of $2 for sure on this. And if they could pull it off for the next couple quarters, again, they're going to be into 2022 estimates that the analysts already have. So you're talking now about 32 times, 33 times. That's not very high. That's that's historically where it's been. So you can't even say the valuation's a stretch. My point is the numbers are so strong. The earnings numbers are so strong. As long as they can keep pulling that off for the next few quarters, I don't think anybody can say it's dramatically overpriced. Not Microsoft. Not it's right amazing. now. At, at, it's at amazing. These numbers, where they're going to be. Yeah. Well, we'll see. And again, a big week for all of them. In the meantime, let's turn and talk some crypto and credit because we've got some interesting news in this space today. The crypto platform Gemini is partnering with MasterCard and also with the Web Bank, with Web Bank, which is a digital bank, to launch the first ever crypto rewards credit card. I, I confess, I don't really get the point of this. Users get up to 3% rewards in the form of Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. Kate, the wait list apparently is more than 140,000 people strong. Why not just get a, a more lucrative normal rewards card and put the cash into crypto? Why do you need them to do it, that for you? I think as a consumer, this is symbolic. If you see yourself as a hodler, somebody who, who supports Bitcoin and believes in it, they might say, oh, it's sort of a gimmick. I want to have the card. If you're earning 3% back, it's, some, you're, it's a way to get exposure to Bitcoin or to cryptocurrencies without really having to think about it. You get 3% every time you buy something. It goes in your Gemini account. I think the bigger picture here is a lot of these crypto companies are starting to look a lot like banks. This company Gemini does trading. They allow you to store your Bitcoin. If they're launching credit cards, is that eventually a threat to some of the banks? And I think on the credit card companies, MasterCard, Visa, yes. even PayPal, you've had them get into the mainstream cryptocurrency narrative, and it seems like they're taking it more seriously. Well, if you're MasterCard and Visa, this is potentially a huge threat. DeFi is kind of a threat to those existing entrenched uh, duopoly. Yeah. So you're right. Absolutely. The fact that MasterCard was on this to me was interesting. But yeah. Bob, it's also kind of <laughs> a, a sign of the times. You know, if First of all, crypto is extremely volatile, but people have such a sense that it's going to keep going up. They're willing to take it in the form of cash because it seems to be cash plus an option to go higher. If this thing turns around and you have your rewards sitting in crypto, you've just lost money. Yeah, this what this story is really about is the slow march of bitcoins as an acceptable means of payment as money. Uh, we know what money is. It's a means of payment. It's also a store of value. It really isn't a means of payment so far. It's stupid to pay with Bitcoin to buy a pizza. But this is about the slow march towards that. More importantly, look what Visa said recently. They, they will allow, they're talking about allowing the use of cryptocurrency to settle transactions on its payment network. Now you're really talking about the possibility of uh, acceptable means of payment. So think about this as the long I mean, who wants 3% Bitcoin? It's, it's silly, but it's about a slow march towards a No, I'm just saying if you want 3% Bitcoin, buy it yourself, Kate. Don't spend $200 uh, <laughs> on the card. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you Kelly, a quick a final. Go ahead, John. <laughs> you can have the final word. This is like back in the late 90s when Sun Microsystems said they're the dot and dot com. Everything was trying to be dot com back then. Everything's trying to be crypto now. And then all of a sudden, 
you know, five years later, nobody wanted to talk about dot com. I don't think crypto is going away. Bitcoin clearly here to stay. But three to five years from now, it's going to look very different. I don't think it's going to be a gimmick driven thing like this. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, Kate, Bitcoin like helps Tesla do the quarter. So let's just run through this news real quickly. Tesla did report some pretty big beats on the top and bottom line last night. The stock is down about three percent right now. There is some focus on the fact that part of the money it made was from selling its ten percent uh, of its Bitcoin portfolio. It was about a billion and a half portfolio. That means it kind of made more money selling the Bitcoin than selling the actual cars. Uh, it contributed, as you can see, about $101 million to its bottom line, about a quarter of the total profit. Bob Sani, you have to really get into the details of this report to figure out what's going on. And the bulls can point to the automotive side and say profit margins are up and, you know, their order book is growing. And it, this Model 3 is the best-selling luxury car in the world. And they can ignore even the fact that it was Bitcoin, that, I guess, that helped them um, uh, make the quarter. When you deal with Elon Musk, you have to accept a certain amount of bombast. So, yes, a quarter of the profits are Bitcoin. More outlandish is the claim that the Model Y could be the best-selling car in the world in 2022. I mean, the Ford F-Truck sells like 800,000 vehicles <laughs> a year. That's what Tesla will probably deliver if they're really good on their total portfolio next year. It seems a little outlandish, but you expect that with, with Elon Musk. Here's a guy who revitalized the space program, who revitalized the electric vehicle market, who revitalized the solar market and the solar battery market. The guy has made good on his claims. If you have to put up with a certain amount of bombast and, and sometimes silliness, uh, I think it's the I think it's been worth it. I think the man is a genius. Yeah. I've been a big backer of his from the very beginning. Kate, when asked about the Bitcoin sales, Elon Musk said, I think this was on Twitter, maybe to Dave Portnoy, he said, we were doing it to test liquidity in the Bitcoin market. And there are professional traders telling me Bitcoin liquidity is about better than some commodity asset classes right now. That It's pretty good. I don't know what concern there was or what point Tesla thinks it made. But for all the professionals, they're saying, yeah, this is a pretty liquid market. Right. There's not a lot of comparisons, but if you think about Square, who's done something similar to put Bitcoin on their balance sheet, you don't see them selling and they make money off of Bitcoin transactions, micro strategy. That doesn't seem to be the point of buying Bitcoin and holding it on your balance sheet. You don't see a lot of other sellers. So Elon Musk did see some pushback from Dave Portnoy and others. Uh, so I saw someone call him lettuce hands, which right. apparently is a Brazilian <laughs> soccer term, but the opposite of diamond hands, apparently. So crypto believers are saying, you know, maybe he's not the real deal. <laughs> Should I not even ask John what diamond hands are? Oh, you know what diamond hands are. I have no, I have no idea. <laughs> you hold and you, you can keep holding because your hands are made of diamonds. They're your hands are diamonds. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, if this, is, if this is a currency, people buy it. They were happy when Elon, you know, through Tesla, when Tesla bought it. Of course, they're going to sell some of it sometimes. It's just it's just the way it works. Maybe at the end of the quarter. Everybody can't have diamond hands. <laughs> yeah, I've learned something every day from you guys. John Fort, K. Rooney, and Bob Bassani, thank you all very, very much for this edition of Rapid Fire. Still ahead, more than a half a million new businesses opened during the pandemic, according to new data. And with 96 million Americans now fully vaccinated, we'll dig into these numbers and where businesses are thriving next. But first, April is Financial Literacy Month, and CNBC has been sharing messages from business and thought leaders about the importance of financial education. Here's VaynerX Chair and CEO of VaynerMedia, Gary Vaynerchuk. I think we need to completely revamp the education system. We have a macro system that forces many of them to go into debt for higher education, which is supposed to give them a diploma that's supposed to be an ROI positive execution. That has collapsed in this modern generation. We're completely delusional as a society of how to set up kids for success financially. 
Welcome back. Some encouraging signs the economy is on the path to recovery. According to Yelp, more than half a million new businesses opened in the U.S. between April 1st, 2020 and March 31st of this year. It's an 11 percent drop from 2019, but not nearly the hit most expected. And reopenings are on the rise. More than a quarter million businesses have opened back up, including 50,000 in this first quarter. That's the highest level since last summer. For more on how and where America is getting back to business, let's welcome in Justin Norman. He's vice president of data science at Yelp. Justin, welcome. Thank you. So let's start with the new openings, because I think we understand the reopenings. But more interesting to me is what kind of new businesses are opening? I understand that it's really picked up in the first quarter of this year. Um, And it reminds me of this YOLO economy article, the great article the New York Times the other day. So what's driving this and where are we seeing it happen? Yeah, so... Thank you. As you mentioned, new business openings have reached their highest levels in the last 12 months, as a lot of entrepreneurs have leveraged new skills to pivot into business ownership, uh, even throughout the difficult year. And in Q1, uh, a lot of the restaurant and food businesses, as well as home, professional, local and auto services, were leading the charge in terms of new openings. Uh, And Yelp's data shows particularly interesting spikes in new business openings for uh, restaurant and food businesses that cater to takeout, outdoor dining, and other COVID-19 safe activities, as well as bakeries and dessert shops as people take their baking hobbies that they may have developed during the pandemic uh, and develop them into new ventures. And finally, in that professional local home and auto sector, people spent a lot of time at home and in their neighborhoods at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, so, of course, those sectors are increasing. But as we sort of got the hang of it and decided that we were going to go on vacation within driving distances, those auto services are also starting to see increases. Wow. So there's quite a bit to pay attention to there. And pickleball, am I right? Seeing activity there? Sure. So pickleball experienced a resurgence of, of recent interest of about over 200 percent, in particular in Missouri and Kansas from uh, Q1 of this year. Uh, and so, really, it's in that same category of, of activities which are outdoor give you the ability to be social, but also be safe at the same time. So I guess what I'm trying to understand is, is there a kind of new trend that, you know, where people are either leaving maybe corporate jobs or they were not able to go back to what they were doing and and jobs were unsafe because of COVID. And they said, I'm going out on my own. I'll take the chance. And I'm, I'm looking towards the reopening. I mean, is that what's happening? Do you have any sense of what age groups we're talking about? Um, I understand that real estate has also been a big driver and maybe all of the activity there. Sure. So, you know, kind of starting with the types of of businesses that are opening, you're seeing things like bars and sandwich shops, breakfast and brunch shops, massage massage therapists, and and also those sorts of categories definitely lead the charge in the new openings as well as reopening. So I think there's definitely something there in terms of people who may have transitioned into different careers and and going after ideas that they uh, previously may not have done before. And then you mentioned as well real estate. Well, the pandemic home buying frenzy uh, is still going on, and it's evident in the new business openings. Every state in the U.S. saw more than a 90 percent increase in consumer entries for real estate agents compared to Q1 of 2020. Wow. So that means that people are in new locations uh, and they're also in a different work uh, and home situation than they were at the beginning of the pandemic, which, of course, uh, is a great um, uh, precursor to starting new businesses uh, in different locations. Is all this sustainable? You know, so it's really difficult, of course, for anyone to predict the future. We don't know uh, what exactly is going to happen. But what we have seen is that the result of some of these new businesses is the the new businesses are a result of innovation. Um, So you see things like digital delivery of of people's uh, businesses in beauty, for example. Um, You see things like being able to deliver curbside uh, pickup for uh, even a retail. 
Uh, and, and in the restaurant sector, a lot of the outdoor dining that's happening, things like low, slow streets uh, and safe streets, is also leading a lot of the opening and engagement. So uh, many of these factors are brand new in the pandemic. And so we're going to have to take a look over time to see if they're sustainable. But certainly uh, they can uh, exist in both the pandemic and, and post-pandemic. World. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I, I guess my final question, since you are the data science guy, do you know is April, is it even more activity? Can you give us a, a little glimpse yet? So uh, as a data science person, I would definitely not want to uh, to you know, share anything until we have a chance to do the analysis. But uh, what we do see in the past year when we had May, uh, May occur um, in April was that these trends definitely followed the uh, pandemic caseload as well. And uh, now with vaccinations and also reopening occurring at the national level, in uh, more areas, we expect that to continue. Yeah, you, I mean, you'd have to almost expect a boom at this point. It'll be really interesting to see. I, I know anecdotally, I see them springing up everywhere. Justin, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank Justin you. Norman of Yelp. Up next, shares of Pinterest soaring more than 270% over the past year as the pandemic kept people at home. But with the reopening, can it keep that momentum going? We'll discuss ahead of earnings after the bell today. Stay with us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.